if it could be not only used, you were talking about using it for medications and why certain medications work on some patients or have a different effect on other patients. What about the disease itself? Is there any way that that there's a phenotyping involved there, like this virus, it just seems so random. It seems, is it random or is it something that is there that we, well, I certainly don't know about, but maybe hasn't been discovered yet, or I don't know. Well, certainly, um, uh, of course, it's, you know, majority of our uh, work is focused on different type of disease. And uh, um, like we know, you know, lots of genes associated with the type two diabetes we already know, and type one diabetes we know is uh, there's some certain genes on your chromosome six highly associated with that. And when we talk about the COVID nineteen, of course we did lots of study on COVID nineteen, and uh, one interesting study uh, we called that um, uh, what we did is like a. Um, at the very beginning, because we, we don't understand uh, what COVID-19 looks like. It's this unknown disease. And we gradually collect some information from patients who test positive. And we also have some patients came into the hospital and test negative. So what we did, uh, you know, informatically, and we can compare their uh, presented symptoms. Mm. So that will help us to uh, gradually understand if there are any unique symptoms uh, strongly associated with the COVID-19 test positive. So we recently got a paper published. Um, you know, we find uh, uh, like uh, probably you already heard from news or media. It's like uh, COVID-19 significantly associated with the uh, uh, loss of taste and right. loss of smell. Yeah, we found that signal is a two weeks earlier than CDC released their released a warning. Hello and welcome to Informatics in the Round, a podcast designed to help everyone become a part of the dialogue about topics in biomedical informatics. I'm Kevin Johnson, Physician and Informatics Chair at Vanderbilt, found on Twitter at, at @kbjvanderbilt, on my Podbean site at www.kevinbjohnsonmd.net, or on the web in other ways. Heck, you could probably find my cell phone if you know the dark web. Our second episode of the year is fascinating. Here's a clue if the opening segment didn't give it all away. What do phenotypes, COVID, cancer, Spider-Man, and Jurassic Park have in common? <laughs> See if you can answer that at the end of this episode. If you can't figure it out, go to our website and I'm sure I'll leave you a better clue there. We welcome back Shannon Rich, who is a regular and a constant boost of energy and cynicism. Jane Bach also returns for this episode, a well-known and really terrifically insightful songwriter. And she sings a great song that actually hints at one of the subtexts of this conversation. Wei Chi Wei is a national expert in phenotyping, which is essentially the science of using analytics and natural language processing to uniquely identify subgroups of people in a medical record system who have specific defining characteristics. By the way, you know how on our phones we have to say things like excuse the typos? 
Well, please forgive any pops or extraneous noises in the world of the Zoom recording, present recording included. We're planning to upgrade our audio soon. Of course, once we all get vaccinated, we'll make sure that we can all get face-to-face, which will be even better. So as a reminder, I love feedback. Please message me on Twitter at KBJ Vanderbilt or leave me comments on my Facebook site for Informatics in the Round or on my Podbean site. I am waiting for your ideas. Well, let's get to it. This is going to be a lot of fun and a little bit scary. Hope you enjoy. Good, how are you? Good. Hi. The person with the really cool hair and the great glasses is Jane Bach. And as you can oh, tell, <laughs> it's you, right. Of course. Yes. And Jane, who's been on here a couple of times, as you can tell from the background, has a little bit of a history in music. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. Well, what are, what are you not? Is that not, is that not your studio or you're not your yes, area? It is. I'm in my music room and I forget. And it's something like, well, maybe I'll turn it, but wherever I turn, there's stuff hanging up on the wall. Oh, just well, do me, well, do me a favor. Turn, turn the camera 360 so we can see. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. I do it. Thanks. Starts there. Wait. Uh-huh. Okay. And then. And I it, saw your husband's arm. And then it goes there. And wow. then those are just all albums and records that I either have songs on or that I produced or. Here we go, going around the back. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I love the I love the guitar pillow. Oh, <laughs> isn't that cute? It is. Yes, I got and, that. And she and I have a collection in common as well. Giraffes. Oh, yeah. My I didn't even show you my giraffe collection. Oh, come on. I've got around. You can do it. I love giraffes. Okay. I dearly do. Okay. And so Wei Chi, introduce yourself. I, I can tell you this. So Wei Chi is an absolutely brilliant informatician, data scientist, but he is, you know, he is a star in our department, does this thing called, um, well, he does this precision medicine topic, but he does a very specific aspect of it, and he'll talk about that. He's also just a really nice human being. He's one of the most productive people, but he always has a great attitude, and I just, you know, he is... He is going to be everybody's favorite mentor in the next 10 years. They're all going to want to work with him. They already do. But hey, Wei Chi, what's your favorite, what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? Uh, I collect teapots. You know, I drink lots of tea, you know, and uh, uh, I play golf. We have a foursome every weekend. So we play together, you know. <laughs> yeah. I'm not that good. I'm just, you know, still got my handicap is probably over 20. Uh, sometimes I even hit over a hundred. It's okay. I don't even know what a handicap is. <laughs> I don't understand anything about golf. I'm looking at my husband and laughing because he loves golf. So everybody, uh, you know, welcome to Informatics in the Round. We have three guests today. Two you've heard from before. Uh, I'll, I'll say their name and then they can like say something back. So Shannon. Like, Hi, Kevin. Hi. Jane. Hi, Kevin. Hi, everyone. And then Wei Chi Wei. Wei Chi, say hi. Hello, everyone. This is Wei Chi. Thank you. Um, and Wei Chi, we're going we're gonna to spend a lot of time today. This year has been an incredible year. And in, in a lot of the first year of, the, of this podcast, we've had to talk about COVID, 
and trust issues, which have been a big issue that James brought up multiple times, and it turned out to be <laughs> so important. And we didn't talk as much about some hardcore informatics. And I, I wanted us to sort of get into some of what people do who call themselves informatics this year. And Wei Chi has probably got the hardest area to describe that turns out to also be the most relevant of a lot of the things people do in informatics. And so if you were to talk to a three-year-old about what you do, what do you tell your kids? So first I want to say, just remember a word called phenotyping. So that's my job. Then I'm gonna explain what is a phenotyping. I'll probably start with the, what is a phenotype. So um, the definition of a phenotype is uh, um, it's uh, any observable physical trait of a human being. So that's uh, quite complex. But for example, people may have a different eye colors. People may have a different hairstyle. Some is straight, some is uh, curly. And uh, um, even, you know, blood types, that's a phenotype. Also, you know, the height and the weight, that's all phenotype. But in my lab, uh, we study phenotypes like the disease and why patient, you know, taking the same medication, but they have a different response. Okay, so does that make sense to you guys? A phenotype basically has a lot to do with your physical characteristics, but it also has a lot to do with how you respond to certain medicines, such as my COVID vaccine hasn't bothered me at all. I know somebody that had their first shot and not feeling well. Hmm. So I, I think there's, that's what he's getting at. Some cancers um, may respond to one person. It, treatment may respond one way. And another person in the same stage with the same cancer may not respond at all to that treatment. Right? That's it? Yeah. So Jane... Would you mind sharing a little bit about your husband's cancer? He is a survivor. As a matter of fact, last week, a week and a yeah. half ago, he went for, he goes every three months for a procedure. I, now I forget what it is, but it's a cyst, cystox. Oh it's not a cesarean. No, it's a <laughs> thing like that. I don't know. But anyway, and um, they, they look, you know, to, to they guess there's a little camera involved. And they look in there, make sure that everything's okay and that there's no more tumors and everything's all clear. And thank goodness, again, he got a great report and everything is great. And so we're very, very pleased with that. How did they figure out that he had cancer? He, do you want to tell them? I mean, he's sitting right here. It makes yeah, it seem yeah, like he's... It didn't happen to me. It happened to I've you. There was blood in my right. Urine. He what happened is truthfully, he saw blood in his urine. And I don't know, had you been struggling or feeling weird or because you, you never said no, anything to I me? Didn't. No, nothing. And he noticed blood in his urine. And so uh, he mentioned it to me. And of course, I was like, oh, my God. You got to call the doctor. God, I think I was I was in L.A. at the time and I was like, oh, my God, you've got to call the doctor. And um, he did. And we he went over to uh, meet with Dr. Duong, who is his um, doctor. And uh, I think also he was urinating more. He was getting well. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. He was getting up like he was literally it got to the point where he was almost getting up every half hour. Oh, well, yeah, that's the problem. I told you it's been ever since he's been cleared. <laughs> I feel like I don't even want to 
I guess I'm in denial. I don't even want to think that it ever even happened. And so it's a weird little mechanism, you know, and, uh, and I forget things and I forgot that, but that is the case. And then he said he saw blood in his urine. Got it. So, yeah. So, with, I guess he, did he have kidney or bladder cancer? Bladder. Bladder, which can be difficult to treat. It was extremely aggressive. Tumor. Aggressive. It went from five centimeters when they first discovered it to almost seven and a half centimeters by the time they took it out, which was less than days a, later. Yeah, about 30 days later. He went through whatever they told him to do. He did. He changed his diet and, and uh, you know, has been trying to live right. Well, the only person that told me to change my diet was Jane. No, that... <laughs> Well, what do you think Google is? Not wasting a good crisis. Everything. I researched everything, you know, and what the best foods for each cancer, you know, that you should eat, you know, that are rich in whatever nutrients it is that you need for that particular cancer. And so, yeah, what can I tell you? So, so wait, when, when people get cancer and there's multiple treatment options, how does that relate to this whole phenotyping? conversation. Yeah, let me um, give you an example. You know, there's a very classical example in cancer space is uh, mercaptopurin, or people call that 6MP. So that's a special medication um, designed to treat uh, acute leukemia. It's a very bad cancer. And uh, um, the problem of the medication 6MP is like a uh, it may damage bone marrow for certain patients if the patient, they don't have a special enzyme called the TM, TPMP. And actually, this is not rare. Uh, based on, you know, study, it's like a one out of 300 people in the globe population, they don't have a sufficient TPMP. So therefore, to understand the relationship between, you know, an individual's TPMP gene will help us to adjust the dose. For the, for the medication so we can avoid some very fatal toxicity. So let me go back and ask you a question. Um, and Shannon, jump in anytime you have something to say, because I know you do. Um, so how does somebody figure out that this, this gene even matters? Like, you know, I get, the, I get the chemotherapy. I have my treatment response. Somebody else gets the therapy. They don't have the same treatment response. How do people figure out that gene has something to do with it? Well, there's a, a very classical traditional study design will be like a genome-wide association study or called GWAS. So the idea actually is to compare uh, people who got the cancer and who don't have the cancer and compare, screen their genome, see whether or not there's a big difference. So that will help people to identify, you know, some gene that's potentially that will increase the risk or lower the risk of a certain disease like cancers. And also, similar like some patients, uh, when they uh, take the same medication, they got a very bad outcome or uh, bad reaction versus other people, they took the same medication, but they are facial, there's no very bad outcomes. We can do a genome-wide association that can help us. How is it that you've identified these things? What, what is your mechanism for identifying these gene mutations and and, and what does that process look like? So uh, this is a power about informatics, I would say, and technology, actually. It's like uh, uh, 
we can go back to you know year like a 2000 year 2000 around that so we got the human genome projects just finished so therefore you know right now it's like the cost to um uh, genotype an individual sample is much cheaper it's more affordable than ever before so we can in that case we have some you know we call that bio bank Biobank bio means we have their blood samples that can link back to their medical records. So we can do um, very interesting study efficiently. For example, in the Biobank, we have like, um, uh, let's say half million individuals medical records. We can identify who got certain disease. We can use others who don't have certain disease as a controls. Then we can just compare their genome. That will help us to identify some genes associated with the, with, the, with, the, with the disease. So Jane, have you ever heard of a biobank? No, this is very, I mean, I'm sitting here and listening to this. It's very interesting. It's funny because I'll be like, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. And then all of a sudden it's clarified. I do understand what he's talking about. A lot of it is a little bit over my head. Um, <clears throat> and I, when he mentioned that bank, the, is it a biobank? Biobank, yes. And and if I'm to understand you correctly, in this bioblank biobank, <laughs> my God, is blood? So so blood is the most common tissues we collect, um, and usually we collect those when there's a kind of like a lab when people uh, routinely visit hospital and do their exams, and they have some you know like a blood work that that'll be the leftover then we'll ask whether or not patient, they want to make some contribution to research. And once we got the consent, they signed the consent, we can just uh, collect those, you know, uh, blood sample for future for research. The tube of blood that they use to run your, you know, blood test, we take the extra blood and we store it in a bank. Okay. Oh, bank. A, a few years ago, a few years ago, I knew this was true, but I'm not sure if it still is. Does Vanderbilt still have the most the largest biobank? Single institute, we're the largest. Okay, all right. But of course, there's some uh, larger um, national program, for example, all of us, they collect more information from different institutes. And all of us was a project we talked about. It's a federally funded project to make essentially a national biobank where each person provides DNA to one large record and then all researchers around the country and even around the world can access it and do the same kind of studies that Wei Chi's talking about. People practice average care medicine. So as a doctor, I get a book. I turn to the page that says leukemia. It recommends a therapy. I give that to you. Well, what if the therapy is wrong? And then so what we say is what we don't want to do is average care medicine. We want to know exactly what is going on with Gary and then use the information that other patients like Gary have taught us, which means other people who have the same phenotype, right? Yes. When you say other people that have the same phenotype, can it be something as simple as blue-eyed people? Or, I mean, what do you mean by the same, that they have the same phenotype? So, so definitely, definitely, you know, the uh, eye color is a phenotype, but we're more interested in uh, what well, we can help people, right? We definitely don't want to help people to change their eyes. I no. right. So, 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 or target phenotype is a kind of like a disease. We care about another um, um, project we're doing. Actually, it's about the studying. 
Studying is a very common drug used to lower, you know, people's bad cholesterol. But like uh, based on previous study shows, like uh, probably uh, one out of 10 patients, they are not be able to tolerate study. And so which means they feel some pain of their muscles or some, they, they couldn't take the medication. Mm -hmm. so, so what happened there? Several years ago, there's a large trial is studying this. They find uh, some gene called SLCO1B1, which one is strongly associated with uh, myopsy, uh, studying induced myopsy. So right now, you know, like a clinical guideline, we already put like, uh, once the week, assign the studying, prescribe the studying to patients, we need to consider their gene information. Wow. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that little emoji with the mind blown? Did you ever <laughs> see that one? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Well, there's also a lot of, you know, there's a lot of issues interwoven in all of this. And um, I just find it very interesting to ponder. Yeah. You know, to well, I, I just want to say, you know, because each individual is unique. So uh, therefore, where our job is trying to find the, you know, the best suitable treatment based on each patient's uniqueness. Wow. So you have to find their uniqueness in order to find some sort of common ground, though, because they're not the only ones who are going to be struggling with a particular medicine in that particular way. I, you know, in my songwriting, I know that if I say something in a song and you don't understand it, there will be other people that won't understand it as well. So it's kind of the same thing to me, you know, but uh, it's. Well, and that's, you know, in song, this is a great parallel because when, you know, as, when you as a songwriter or, or Shannon as an IT expert, counselor, funny influencer makes a <laughs> Right, and it and it and it resonates well with other people. They are sometimes, in fact, somebody recently wrote something about this in the New York Times. Some of those people you knew from the very beginning, right? Like if you said something like, "Here's to all the divorced women out there," right? You know that that song is going to work for the divorced women. You know the phenotype of the divorced woman, right? They're used to. I do. <laughs> but you know, but so you know that. And then here's the thing, somewhere there's a divorced man who is that song is working just as well for him as it did for a divorced woman. And I think, you know, Wei Chi, when you do these research projects and you're looking for a particular group of people who are similar, have you ever been surprised that while you're looking for one group of people who are similar, you discover a completely different group of people who have something else unique about them? I think so. For example, um, we did a lot, right now we did lots of study using their, you know, the genetic architecture. We combine, you know, each uh, genetic variance information together. We call that a polygenetic risk score. So what is a polygenic risk score? So, so we already talked about what is a GWAS, right? It's a genome-wide association study. So we Usually, once we got a big GWAS, we will find the loss of genetic variants associated with a certain disease, the target disease or the target phenotype. Then we will use that information, combine those information mathematically to calculate the score. Then we'll say, based on the score, you know, the patient is got a higher risk for that disease. Some patient may got lower risk to that disease. That's a poly 
genetic risk score. Talk well, about yeah, I was going to ask. I mean, do you think that these are real numbers, or you know, in other words, that people really experience this? Or it turns out that when you look at cancer, these are exactly the types of breakthroughs that are helping people survive cancer. Wow! Some of what we're learning about this phenotyping um, from work that Wei Chi's group has done has been really important in COVID. And it can even possibly be important in diseases like suicide, mental illnesses, because all of those are phenotypes. If you start well, saying- I was, I'm so sorry, but I wanted to ask him if, um, that's, I guess the answer would be yes, but that's so weird. Ask the um, question, yeah. If it could be not only used, you were talking about using it for medications and why certain medications work on some patients or have a different effect on other patients, what about the disease itself? Is there any way that that there's a phenotyping involved there? Like this virus, it just seems so random. It seems, is it random or is it something that is there that we, well, I certainly don't know about, but maybe hasn't been discovered yet, or I don't know. <laughs> well, certainly. Um... Uh, of course, it's, you know, majority of our uh, work is focused on different type of disease. And uh, um, like we know, you know, lots of genes associated with the type 2 diabetes, we already know. And type 1 diabetes, we know is uh, there's some certain genes on your chromosome 6 highly associated with that. And when we talk about the COVID-19, of course, we did lots of study on COVID-19. And uh, one interesting study, uh, we call that... Um, uh, what we did is like uh, um, at the very beginning, because we, we don't understand uh, what COVID-19 looks like. It's this unknown disease. And we gradually collect some information from patients who test positive. And we also have some patients came into the hospital and test negative. So what we did, uh, you know, informatics, and we can compare their uh, presented symptoms. Mm. So that will help us to uh, gradually understand if there are any unique symptoms uh, strongly associated with the COVID-19 test positive. So we recently got a paper published. Um, you know, we find uh, uh, like uh, probably you already heard from news or media. It's like uh, COVID-19 significantly associated with the uh, uh, loss of taste and right. loss of smell. And smell. Yeah, we found that signal is a two weeks earlier than CDC released their released a warning mm. to the public. Yeah. So that's a, that's a power of, you know, informatics and phenotyping. Uh, yeah, both of my sons had COVID, they're young men. And, um, you know, thank goodness it was virtually nothing with one and it was uncomfortable with my other, but they both recovered beautifully. And, um, it just, it just seemed to me, again, so random. So, I mean, and I know someone who is their age and got seriously, seriously sick with it. Yeah. And I know someone from it and is just about their age. So, I mean, it just seems so. Yeah. so let me, well, let me tell you about the exciting thing that relates to that, that Wei Chi's been doing. So we're talking about one patient at a time, right? And you talk about COVID and how random it is. So there's more to the COVID story. And even though I wasn't going to talk too much about COVID, I will bring this thing up. So we know that there's this other group of people called post-acute 
COVID syndrome, a group of people who seem to have COVID and then they still have COVID brain or they still seem to have problems with bone pain or maybe other things, rashes, other diseases. And we still don't know what makes certain people likely to get that and which ones you know, can't. So if you had to do this the way that Wei Chi does the research he usually does, all you would know is that for any one patient who came in, um, we could do these studies and we could figure out what's going on with them. But what if you could go across every single patient in the entire Nashville area and call them and say, you are at risk for this and this and this from COVID. And you are not at risk from this and this and this at COVID. In other words, what if we could do a phenotype that was a COVID risk phenotype for every single person at Vanderbilt? Would that be useful? Absolutely. So you're saying a phenotype which would be what you are at risk for, but it's a risk, right? It's not that you won't get COVID, it's the type of reaction you'll get to COVID or the way the COVID affects you? Yes, it's challenging, but it's possible. When I say challenging, it's because COVID is different from uh, other common disease because we already accumulate a huge amount of data for, for certain common disease like CVD, even different type of cancers. But COVID-19 is relatively new in our data. Nobody understand that and uh, uh, yet, and, uh, and we have a very, compared to other disease, we have a very limited number of patients information for us for analysis. But, I, but once the data got accumulated more and more, yes, it's very, very possible. One of the, one of the questions that, that I really had, we haven't even come to, but I want to because it's in the news right now. Go for it. The CRISPR. Yeah, I just heard them talking about that this morning. So, Ray, is any of your work involved in that? And what do you, and what are your concerns? Is it about the gene editing technology? Yeah, right? CRISPR Cas. Yeah. So, uh, number one, that's not my expertise, and I don't know too much detail and uh, uh, about the CRISPR technology at this stage. That's a very promising um, technology that can help you know, certain um, people with some you know, serious genetic problem. And of course, there's a lot of ethical concerns and who should do this under the procedure and how to do that. Um, I think that's uh, beyond my knowledge to answer that. Um, but but are, they, are, are they building off of the human genome work that you've been involved in and off of the phenotyping? Because to me, it sounds like they had to have that as the base level to go forward and actually um, manipulate genetics. Yeah, there are more. Right? On the, yeah, there are more on the genetic side. It, it's kind of related, meaning so sickle cell is known to be a one gene mutation. Okay, it's one. Actually, it's even it's even smaller than that, right? It's one DNA nucleotide delete um, re replacement. Okay, and so. If you could edit that one nucleotide and fix it, you could stop what is also a very bizarre random illness because many patients with sickle cell disease, not many, but a, a, a large number of patients with sickle cell disease have minimal symptoms. But there's this other group of people who have the same single gene mutation who have silent strokes when they're babies, 
who have painful crises, sometimes who have these really awful hemolytic crises where they lose all of their, like a lot of their red cells. It's a very serious disease, a thing called chest syndrome where they're in the ICU and they have to get double and triple volume blood transfusions. So they get all their blood exchanged twice from one thing. And so what if we had a, a technique where we could go in, take out some of their cells, edit out the sickle cell, right? So edit out the gene deletion, edit in the replacement nucleotide, wipe out the rest of their bone marrow, and then put these new fixed cells in, okay? They so, were just talking about that on MSNBC this morning. Yeah, right. well, that's done. We've yeah, done. it was, it was. Yeah, so we've done that, right? And that's been something Francis Collins talked about. There's a couple of, of pa patients now who have had their sickle cell cured through CRISPR-Cas9 related technologies, right. gene editing technologies. But right. to get to that, like, let's say that you have, let's say that you are known to have a certain disease that affects you when you're older. And Wei Chi's research search helps to find out that there's a particular genetic variant that's causing that disease. Theoretically, that research been, when done could identify the variant and we could fix that variant using CRISPR-Cas9. I think that's the connection you're looking oh, for. Oh, so they're connected that way. Yeah, so, because uh, one of the things that, that's fascinated me, um, Wow. Was the first, well, the first cure for AIDS and HIV was through a bone marrow transplant based on knowing that if you had a heritable gene that, that, that was passed down through the Black Plague, that if you had this gene, you were not uh, impacted by the plague. You were pretty much, you wouldn't catch it. Right. And they they discovered that gene through hemophiliacs that did not get HIV before the blood supply was cleaned up. And some doctor in Germany, I think it was, was the one that said, okay, my patient is HIV positive and also needs a bone marrow transplant. I'm going to look for this genetic material, boom. And, and I think that's awesome. And I, I think curing sickle cell, I did a paper on that when I was in fifth grade, believe it or not, that was my first public speech was on sickle cell anemia. But, but and, and I think that's wonderful, but I've also seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> and- <laughs> See, Wei Chi, this is what happens. We, ha we have this <laughs> conversation going, talking about some really great informatics and then Shannon comes in and brings up dinosaurs and a fictitious. <laughs> go ahead, Shannon. Please go ahead. But but I mean, you know, what is the quote? Your scientists, while they were trying to figure out if they could, they never talked about whether they should. And so when you get into this kind of stuff, like I think being able to cure sickle cell anemia is great. But then what if what if a population in a powerful country elects a malignant narcissist with an IQ of a toy potato and decides to start manipulating genes and creates, do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, okay, now you've got this technology out there. Where, where does that stop? You know what I mean? And, and what are the concerns and how do you keep that? Like, I, I could just see Jurassic work. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just want to say, you know, it's um, as the academia, we consider this 
very serious. That's why each project we have like IRB proved, reviewed. So uh, I just want to say this is very, we consider that a very serious issue. Yeah. And for that um, patient, you know, who got cured based on the bone transplant, I remember, I think right. that reason is the, that's the probably the last option for that patient. If I remember correctly, it's the patient got a cancer and also- Yeah, the, leukemia. Right. He got so, leukemia and- yeah, that's a very unique case, but that's a great discovery, I would say. There's a fa there's a book that came out last year. You say the Master Race? Yeah, well, the Master Race is a good example. <laughs> uh, uh, there's a book called Change Agent that came out last year from an author I know, but right this second I'm blanking on because I'm overworked and tired. And it's all about the use of CRISPR-Cas9 to change phenotypes. There you go. That is, you know, that's the uh, the the fear. I don't, not necessarily my fear, because you know what, I'm one of those people who believes that if it's available, and if it was created in the mind of a human, other humans are going to have at it, and they're gonna, you know, there's there, the good and the evil, you know, the little angel yeah. and the devil. Well, the book I'm thinking of is by Daniel Suarez called Change Agent. Read it. It's very... Hold on. Change Agent. Yeah, it's a good book. So, Waichi, let me just ask you. You're, as a scientist who does really cutting-edge work with phenotyping, do you ever worry that people are going to use your techniques for bad things? That's a question. Um, for phenotyping... Um, I haven't thought about that. I think it's uh, my job is to advance the phenotyping technology so people can do a better research. That's all I'm focused. Uh, I haven't thought about any people can use that badly. Because, you know, here's the thing, guys. Hmm? Of course they can, right? I mean, part of the challenge we have in medicine is when you do cutting edge research with data, you hope that it's going to be used for good and to advance healthcare quality. There's just no way to know whether a paper that somebody like Wei Chi publishes doesn't get picked up by people who decide they're gonna take that in a wrong direction. But to wait, as Wei Chi pointed out, we have a lot of safeguards. So for example, the biobank that you heard about, you could say to yourself, well, what if you wanted to get in that biobank and find all the patients who had the gay gene and then kill them, right? Bingo. Right. Well, the answer is number one, we have very sophisticated security that prevents people to get access to the biobank itself. Number two, you have all kinds of permissions you need to get to get access to any of the data that connects to that biobank. And then of course, number three, um, if anybody's trying to do regular research, they have to go through an institutional review board that looks at exactly the kind of research they're doing. Now, does that prevent me from secretly doing another research project? Absolutely, it doesn't, but I will be fired, okay? So the question is, why am I, am I doing it to try to advance my career or am I doing it because I'm an agent of a state who wants to do something bad to the United States? And if it was me trying to advance my own career, that would be suicide. If I'm doing it with the intent of doing something criminal, yeah, we have other safeguards that we would have to take advantage of there, like background checks before you get hired, which is one of the reasons why Vanderbilt does background checks. We want to make sure that everybody who's there is not, doesn't have a criminal record. Exactly. But, but that's, 
that's a really important point that you make in terms of what we do in research. And, you know, you know, Wei Chi's got some techniques and is a, you know, you know, now internationally known researcher that would make some of the things he does a lightning rod. But the point is yeah. the system is built so that we can hopefully use it for good because yeah. we do want to cure cancer patients and we do want to cure sickle cell disease. And we do want to figure out what makes people like Shannon so funny? What's the phenotype that you need to give other people to make them funny and irreverent like Shannon? I know what it is. It's having a disastrous childhood. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a question. Are you funny or did you have a good childhood? Oh my gosh. The other thing is we know that there are certain environmental areas. There's always, there's been a belief for a long time that patients who are obese have changes in the genetics of the organisms in their stomachs and their in their lining of their of their GI tract called microbiome microbiome, but also that it's possible some of the foods we eat affect our gene expression in our body. Oh wow! So like it's my jelly beans and not the. <laughs> it's possible. I mean, and so yeah. you know, a part of the work that people like Wei Chi does, because um, he's mostly talking about the genes you were born with, also called germline, but there are the genes that patients with cancer have, which are called somatic mutations, meaning a particular part of the body. And then there's this third thing, which is epigenetics, body, your environment changes your genes, and that's epigenetics. Have you done any epigenetics projects, Weichi? No, I haven't. Um, yeah, I haven't. Microbiome will be, yeah, a very interesting topic. Yeah, I haven't done any epigenetic study. All of that genetics, as it turns out, is a part of your phenotyping. So your environment changes your genes. Is that because of what you said when you said that there are viruses that can attach themselves? They're almost like outside forces that can attach themselves to your DNA. Wouldn't that change your DNA if something has attached itself to your DNA? Wouldn't that change the strand? And The answer is yes. So environment, people believe, again, this is theoretical, there are some limited studies, especially animal models, environment, nutrition, behavior, people who are type A, stress, physical activity, working habits, smoking, definitely, alcohol consumption, definitely impacts your genetics. Wow, that's not, in a, not in a way that you can pass on to your children, because that's eggs and sperm. Right. And that's the genes that you were, that were almost hardwired into you when you were born. Right. I mean, so, so Kevin, you're talking about like mesothelioma from asbestos exposure, right? Yes, I am. I'm talking about um, an insult like asbestos actually impacts the tissue of the mesothelium in this case that causes it to become Trans, um, transformed into something that is oncologic, that can cause cancer. But that same asbestos doesn't necessarily change anything about my fingernails or my skin. And that's a classic example of a somatic mutation. It's one particular part of your body, not all of your body. Okay. Good question. So listen, in our last couple of minutes, I have two questions, one for Wei Chi, one for Jane. So Wei Chi, What's the thing that you're hoping to do in your research in the next five years that everybody in the world's going to know about? We are living, you know, in big data area, but you know, this is what in my mind, we got lots of data, but we haven't 
you know, really take advantage of those big data. There's many, many different reasons. You can say the data quality issue or uh, we don't have a sufficient tool to do that. So hopefully, you know, in the next decade, I really want to, you know, um, uh, build up some method or um, approaches that can help us to um, uh, take advantage of this data so we can just uh, bring more benefits to our patients. That'll be our goal. That's a big deal. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful goal. <laughs> so I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you guys will be hearing about this. I mean, this guy's pretty amazing. So, so Jane, I know you're thinking I'm going to ask you to play a song. <laughs> and guess what? I'm not. You're not. Uh -oh. <laughs> she was expecting it. She's got to, but here's what I do want to do. So you, you are a teacher of musicians around town and and around the country really right. right and and so we've had a conversation today about genetics this is a super hot topic how do we, how do musicians decide a what you're going to write about and b if there's a way to translate like a conversation like this into something that matters so like if you were taking the conversation today and you were writing something about gary how would you, how do you do that? Like, how do you get from that to something that we could all appreciate? Well, I mean, basically you're asking how a song is born. Okay, well, there's, you know, there are different ways that song ideas uh, come to fruition. There are where you actually, in a conversation, you, you hear somebody say something and you think to yourself, oh, that would make a great song. That would make a great song. And, uh, you know, so, or you're just inspired through events in the world or events in your life or whatever to write something. You can't wait for inspiration. You have to sit down and actually sometimes it's hard work coming up with a great idea for a song. And I was going to play a song. I practiced and everything. Okay, you can play a song. <laughs> but, but, okay, but before you play the song, let's write, like the smallest little, do you like the, do you do the lyric or the music? I do both. Okay, let's do the smallest little song about phenotyping. Oh my God. <laughs> oh, I know one, it's in the genes. It's in, it's in your genes. Yes, right, so do we start with the hook? Do we have to start with the hook? <laughs> well, what would the hook be? Well, I don't know. So I'm gonna start with Wei Chi. If you were, to, if there was a song about your work, and there was a there was a thing that everybody was gonna start saying around the country about your work, what would it be? What's a hook? What's a good phrase that you would hear a song say? I would say everybody is unique, so you know we should get some unique treatment. Don't make me, don't make me like her. Call the song unique. Okay, so unique. <laughs> it would be the hook. Would be unique. You know. You know, I, I don't know where you're going with it or whatever, you know, but I mean, you and me, oh, me, everything's unique, unique, unique. 
So what are you going to say about, give me, give me, come on, what is, what are we calling this again? Forget the word unique. You were talking about phenotypes and, yeah. you know, you need, you need to include the words that, you know, that, that you're going to be singing about that, that tell the story. So do you, do you, do you, do you embrace the complicated words or do you let them go because you don't want to confuse people? I, oh, I don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm big on multisyllabic words. Phenotype. Yeah, phenotype. Yeah, that's only phenotype is only three. Fair, fair. <laughs> okay. How about, how about phenotypical? Yeah, phenotype is good. <laughs> how about phenotypical? Phenotypical, there you go. Is there such a word? No. But isn't it? <laughs> But isn't that the, if, wasn't, wouldn't phenotypical be the group That's of people who have the same phenotype? Phenotypical. You <laughs> could do a lot with this. You could play on gene, G-E-N-E, and gene, J-E-A-N. Think about oh. it. So gene and gene. It's all in the genes. Okay, this is hard. You think? So so your first step is, you. I'm, we're going to stop, but your first step is, you started making a little bit of a, get a chord. You pick the key. Oh, I just usually do. I, I usually, if you're come, trying to come up with uh, an idea and I don't really have an idea at the time, I sometimes will just, I just let the music guide me almost. I mean, sometimes I'll sit down at the piano, sometimes like now with the guitar and just kind of noodle around with it and see what comes out. And generally speaking, what you start out with is very rarely what you end up with. Yeah. Songs take on a life of their own. And uh, yeah, and so they move through a basic concept. Well, thank you for giving us a sense of like what it's like to start the songwriting process. This song that I was going to do. Um, not going to do. Oh, I'll, if, I'll do it if you have time and you want I me to. I have an, I can edit. I can edit stuff oh. out. This kind of, it kind of speaks to the question, interestingly enough, because the idea was not mine. The idea was a friend of mine and we were talking about, well, we write together and we were talking about ideas one day, not in a writing appointment, just talking about ideas. And I said, you know, this was right after um, the incident at Lafayette Park where the protesters were peacefully protesting and he sicked you know, the tear gas and the army on them. And, um, and it just, when something fires me up, I can't let it go and I have to write about it. And she came up with this idea of I am one. This was her idea. And I said, you're one what? And she said, well, different people, you know, I'm like all these different people, but I'm, I'm one, you know, she's, I don't know. I don't know where to go with it. So this is, I'll play it for you. This yeah, is, uh, let's see. Um, I'm not in the greatest voice right now. I can tell you my voice is in the basement. <laughs> Never thought I'd see the day Soldiers in our street Silencing the people who were marching for peace. 
Funny, I'm, I'm I'm listening to that song, thinking about Shannon, and the fact that that's been the opposite of Shannon. Like she's been out there being the one who did everything while. Right. Well, you know what? It's interesting because we're gonna do it. Well, we did a lyric video of it, not with me singing, with a great singer singing it, and um, but we want to do a video. And my idea is, 
when it comes to the chorus, we have different people, you know, they hold up the signs, right? One person goes, you know, I, I did nothing when I saw what was wrong. And the other person holds up a sign and says, it won't last very long, you know, and each person and in each chorus, they're different people, because the truth is there's a little bit of that in every one of us. Yeah. And uh, and what's great about that song is that it's a song that you think is going to be saying something. It's a positive anthem, except the lyrics are actually a negative anthem, right? It's I'm guilty as opposed exactly. to I am, you know, well, one. So what? But I'm not alone. And the truth is we are stronger together and we will overcome. And until that time when we do, we just have to keep on keeping on and hanging together. So. Well, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I like that song. I could see you were smiling because you were thinking, aha, I'm not that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you so. know what, Shannon, you should check it out on YouTube. There's a lyric video and the girl that's singing it is amazing. I'm going to pull that. I'm going to pull that down and play it here so that everybody can hear it. Not today. I'm going to put it oh, in no, the podcast. No, not today. Not today. Oh, but I will. I will. Next That'll time. be perfect. And Wei Chi, what, what I hear in that song, which I, you know, one of the things we talked about today, which I'm going to make sure I think about some is, we don't talk much about how we as researchers doing really cutting edge research are trusting to society to be the one to use it for good and not the one to use it for bad. You know, I've seen too much. I've, I've seen too much. Yeah, you have. But I don't talk about that. I mean, as a chair of a department that does data science research, we observe, we develop methods we put them in the open source. I mean, do you have stuff that's in Creative Commons? Wait, do you have anything in the open source environment for people yeah. to use? Yeah, yeah. like Netty, like a Vitel, those kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 So we we write we write code, guys, and then we put it out in the world for other people to use it. We don't really ever know because we give it away. It's often because it's funded by your tax dollars. We don't know if somebody's going to do something with that code that leads to something we didn't really want to see happen. And I think Wei Chi's comment about that speaks to, you know, both what we have to make sure we teach our scientists, because Wei Chi, your comment was, I don't really think about that as much. You're thinking about the method, but I think it's probably not a bad idea for us to all at least recognize. Well, just be cognizant of it, you know, because there are, you know, as far as, you know, as I was listening to you all talk about this, I mean, that was going through my mind, you know, the mad scientist, <laughs> I mean, you know. The, like I said, the, you know, the, the master race, but um, what I do truthfully, I mean, not even my gosh, not even close to importance, but what I do, it's the same thing though. You know, I put something out there and it's like people who I've had hit songs. I don't know what people use the, those songs for, you know, I have no idea what they use them for. And, you know, you just put them I out it really, especially in this day and time, and maybe it's just because of, of of some of the stuff I've been involved with this last year, I think a good question at the end of everything before you submit it anywhere is what could somebody do with this if they're a bad actor? Well, you know what? It's and, not so much in what I do. It's um, it's going to be as harmless yeah. as I don't want him using my song because I don't like him and I don't want him using my song. You know, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
Oh my whoever God. whoever wrote that little song is probably getting tired of it too. Oh my god, he's getting very rich, let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but um anyway, I really have to get going. Yeah, so do I. Hey everybody, thank you very much. Thank you. you were terrific. And I think I, I have a feeling that we're gonna wait for Jane's next song to have something about I am one being phenotypes. <laughs> it was so well, that was an interesting ride, huh? So glad you could join us. By the way, if you're new to Informatics in the Round, we have a lot of episodes from last year that are still absolutely worth you taking some time to hear. We covered Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. We covered diversity, equity, and inclusion. We covered all types of areas in the informatics space. And we covered a ton about COVID and trust and truth. It was a really great year. Anyway, thanks again. I'm looking forward to adding to your podcast choices again in a few more weeks. Till then, mask up.